In the eyes of Frank Cespedes, the death of the salesman has been greatly exaggerated. And any business that believes a sales force is a vestige of a bygone era is deluding itself. I'm Brian Kenny, and this is The Business, the official podcast of Harvard Business School. Frank Cespedes is a senior lecturer of business administration at HBS. But before he came here to teach strategy, he ran a business for 12 years where he had to meet payroll and sell. Frank is a firm believer that a company's big-picture strategy should be linked with the nitty-gritty of its sales. No matter how hard he looked, he couldn't find a good book that gave a framework for how to accomplish this. So he went ahead and wrote one. It's called Aligning Strategy and Sales. The book opens with the professor's appreciation of one Cincinnati-born entrepreneur whose name and product you may recognize. I'm Jim Cook. You may think that I'm just a golden-throated pitch man, but I'm not. What I am is the brewer of Samuel Adams Boston Lager. Jim Cook presides over Boston Beer Company, where he cooked up the first Sam Adams beer. In the beginning, the thought of walking into a bar to convince the manager to buy his craft beer scared him to death. You know, I think I may have seen some of that fear firsthand, because I can recall being a bartender in Harvard Square back in the late 1980s, and in the door to this college bar walked this earnest-looking young guy, a little old for that bar, wearing a suit and tie, and he's carrying this case in his hand, one of those traveling sales cases, plopped it up on the bar, opened it up, and inside were jars of barley and hops and, and different colored beers. And it turned out it was Jim Cook. And he said, I'm here to show you why I make the best beer you're ever going to taste. And darned if he wasn't right. And again, uh, he may not have come there to sell, but within about 10 minutes, he had all the bartenders in the restaurant lined up, and he was teaching us about craft beer. Believe it or not, Jim Cook says he spends more time today selling than doing anything else. And Frank Cespedes has high praise for that kind of thinking. Jim is a good example for a couple of reasons. One is uh, his background is quite interesting. You know, he has three degrees from Harvard, but to his credit, he overcame the handicaps. Yeah. Uh, law degree, undergraduate degree, business school degree. After graduating from HBS, went to work for the Boston Consulting Group for seven years, so he uh, has his analytical bona fides. Uh, but as Jim says uh, in the book, he has found selling to be among the most intellectually challenging activities there is in business, mm -hmm. and to quote him, certainly more challenging than anything I ever did at BCG. Yeah. Jim deserves the accolades first for recognizing that, but more importantly for executing on it consistently over 30 years. Actually didn't like sales at first when he started out. He found that distasteful. He certainly learned in a hurry, didn't he? Yes, he sure uh, did. You don't become a billionaire simply by staying away from what doesn't taste that good. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so you're saying that smart CEOs like Jim understand the fact that sales and strategy absolutely need to be linked. And you would even go further and say that the, the person in charge of sales at the firm needs to be sitting at the leadership table and driving strategy. So can you ground this in an example? You've consulted with a lot of firms. You've seen this play out in different ways in different industries. Give us an example of, of a situation where these two things weren't synced up and things didn't go well. Yeah. Well, it's a startup example. In the book, I call it Business Processing Incorporated, BPI. And it's a, a startup that grows to a certain level of sales. But then, as the data will tell you, happens to most startups, it starts to flatten out. Yeah. But what BPI did do as they were growing is essentially conducting an ad hoc sales process, as, as many companies do, not just startups. And as a result, what happened is that they really couldn't identify who is and who is not their customer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is a core decision in any coherent strategy worthy of the name. Now, is BPI, a, this is a real company? or is, Real company. What does, that, what does that stand for? 
Well, you know? in my book, it stands yeah. for Business Processing Incorporated. Okay. The real company was doing uh, online uh, payroll Got it. services. Okay. Uh, but the point is that figuring out where we play, where we don't play, is core to any strategy. That is what we teach. Mm -hmm. But how do you operationalize that? You ultimately operationalize that through what your folks who deal with customers do, where they call, where they don't call, who they consider an important customer, who they don't. And the result is that BPI, like many companies, pursuing that ad hoc process is essentially also fragmenting their resources. They're mm -hmm. doing product development in many myriad ways that are fragmenting R&D. Uh, they're allocating resources internally for uh, delivery in many myriad ways that fragment logistics mm -hmm. and so forth. But when they finally do figure this out, and this is a leadership responsibility, not simply a VP of sales responsibility, what turns out to be the case is that they sell more faster mm -hmm. with fewer people. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's very good. So let's assume uh, the VP of sales has found their way to that C-suite table. Uh, what are the kinds, what, what's the exchange like? What's, what's the CEO going to ask that VP of sales? What kind of information should they be looking for? Well, I think you're using the right word. It needs to be an exchange. It needs to be a dialogue. The issue is dialogue about what? Um, the goal of any strategy is profitable growth. And profitable growth means a positive return on capital. And basically, there are four ways that any company can uh, uh, grow profitably. You have to invest in projects that earn more than your cost of capital. You want to increase profits from existing capital investments. You want to reduce the assets devoted to projects that earn less than their cost of capital. And ultimately, you want to reduce the cost of capital itself. Mm -hmm. Now, my experience is that most C-suite executives understand what I just said. And if they don't understand it, they usually learn in a hurry after they get beat up in one or right. two investor presentations. What most of them do not understand, however, is how sales affects materially and arguably more than any other function in the company, all four of those levers. Mm -hmm. Again, in most firms, projects and investments are driven by revenue-seeking activities with customers. I want to go back to that third point that you mentioned, too, because I interpret that as meaning, to some extent, there are customers that you don't want. Yeah. There are customers you have to get rid of. Yeah. Strategy is fundamentally about choice. It's about saying no as well as saying yes. The, the central fact in business is customers. Without customers, you don't have a business. You, you have a museum. Mm -hmm. uh, so to operationalize that fundamental strategic truth has to be operationalized through the people that are dealing with customers and selecting. And that's what salespeople ultimately do. They select who we're going to invest in and who we're not. So if this is so fundamental and so important, I would imagine that it's core to the curriculum at business schools around the world. Is that true? Uh, sales is a notoriously underrepresented stepchild in the curricula of uh, business schools. And I think we know the reasons for that. One is if you want to get uh, promoted and get tenure in a business school, you're going to have to publish in, quote, unquote, the right journals. Mm -hmm. And there are very few, if any, sales journals that qualify as the right journals. I also personally think there are historical reasons for this that thankfully are out of date. But business schools, in my opinion, for years had an intellectual inferiority complex. And the last thing they wanted to do in the 80s and 90s 
was be perceived as trade schools, and somehow sales is is thought of as a trade school topic. I think those days are gone. The cultural status of MBA programs is obviously way, way beyond that. It's taught, but it's not core. Uh, let me take a I minute. Mean, we've actually invited uh, some of our listeners to tweet in questions to us. So I want to read this question yeah. that came to us from a listener. It comes from Tyler Hogue. So his handle is at T-H-O-G-G-E. And his question to you is, uh, salespeople are inherently biased in their strategy and product recommendation. Uh, in other words, build this from my customer, et cetera. How do you balance the strategy of the company with this inherent uh, sort of drive towards personalization and customization? Well, I mean, a couple of things. I think, uh, first, I think the listener is exactly right about the bias. There are a couple of things, I think, that are important there. One is what drives the bias. The bias is being driven by a couple of things. One is how they're paid, the sales compensation plan. But notice the difference. Let's just take marketing and sales, uh, a, categories that people often uh, put together synonymously, but they're not. They're very, very different. Uh, marketing people get paid to look at aggregates of customers. They get paid to segment. They get mm -hmm. paid uh, to think about how we do things across customers, across geographic areas, etc. That is not how it, what the world of most salespeople. Salespeople have specific accounts. Uh, a market has never bought a thing. In the entire history of capitalism, a market or a market segment has never bought anything. Only accounts specific customers buy, that's where salespeople live. Mm -hmm. So from the salesperson's point of view, this customer, this order, is the most important thing. From the marketing point of view, they quite rightly, as, as the uh, listener says, have to balance these issues. Again, that's why aligning sales with the company is a leadership issue, not only a sales issue. Talk about the Internet, if we can shift to that a little bit. Uh, you wrote in an HBR blog recently, and I'll paraphrase this a little bit. I'll put my own take on it, that um, – the all-too-common perception is that corporate boards are sort of stacked with stodgy old guys who just don't get the Internet. And boy, if they only did, they would realize that you don't need face-to-face -face sales anymore. It's all happening on the Internet. We've disintermediated, and now the power is all in the hands of the consumer. Um, you would say that that's not entirely the case. Is that right? I would say that the point of view you articulated, that's not my point of view. Right. I think that's the conventional, sort of wisdom, conventional wisdom in the wisdom. media. Yeah. Uh, no, that, I mean, it just doesn't hold up uh, to the facts. The number of people classified in sales positions in 2012 was about 14 million people in the United States. That is the same number as 20 years earlier in 1992 mm -hmm. uh, before either you or I could spell Internet. So at one level, it's simply not true that uh, sales jobs are going away. Number two is here, another figure. In 2014, the number of e-commerce sales is estimated to finally be about $300 billion. Wow. Right? Now, yeah. you say, wow, That's and that sounds number. like a big number. That's about 6% of total retail sales. One retailer, Walmart, as an example, mm -hmm. one retailer sells significantly more in their stores than all e-commerce sales Put together, and just to put that three hundred billion dollar figure in context, half of those e-commerce sales are made by the online adjuncts of brick and mortar 
retailers. Mm-hmm. So the talk about salespeople being, quote, disintermediated is vastly overblown. And by the way, it's part of an historical talk. If you go back to the 1930s, you will see articles written in Fortune magazine, for example, uh, titled The Death of the Salesman. That's mm-hmm. where Arthur Miller uh, got his title from. And the theory at the time was that there is this big social network diffusing throughout American society. It's called the telephone. And the theory is that once you got a phone and I got a phone, why do we need a salesperson? Why don't we just call each of other course, up and make right. a deal? Didn't happen. If you fast forward to the 60s, you'll see the same series of articles. And the theory then was we have the national highway system disseminating throughout society. Mm -hmm. And once we have these highways, all people will do is simply drive around shopping for the best price, Mm -hmm. or what today we would call surfing. Didn't happen. Now we have the so-called information superhighway. What is true is that sales tasks are changing. Talk about that a little bit, because so customers, the the internet does do one thing. It empowers customers to have more voice. Everybody's got a megaphone now. Well, the customer has always had a voice. The customer has always been in the driver's seat. There's nothing new there. What the internet does, however, is very clearly allow anyone who wants to take the time to gather more comparable information a lot sooner. The best example of this, I think, is what goes on in car dealerships. Mm -hmm. Relatively few cars, I think it's less than 4% of total sales, uh, relatively few cars are actually bought online. But in excess of 90 plus percent of people, when they go to buy a car, first go to Edmunds.com and all these other sites, That will tell you what the retailer, the car dealer's cost are, what is their cost of every option package. But then they go to the dealer, and that dramatically changes the sales task. What that does is not eliminate the car salesperson. What that does is put more pressure on that salesperson to make that customer engagement a value-added experience as opposed to, let me tell you what our price is. Mm -hmm. And then it is, getting back to our main theme, then it depends on the strategy of that dealership, whether that salesperson is, you know, the typical zoot-suited salesperson we associate with car dealers or whether it's a different experience. But the internet is not eliminating sales tasks. It is changing them. And that's a big distinction. That's a difference that makes a difference. So if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm a journeyman salesperson out there and I want to know what I can do to add value, what are the kinds of skills that I should be looking to cultivate in this sort of new era? Selling has much more to do with the buyer than it has to do with the seller. Interesting. And that's always been true and it's still true. So what are the skills? Listening, as they say. The ability to analyze what the buying process is Uh, for those customers. Uh, In B2B sales, where sales is even more important than it is in consumer, the ability to to do what we do still teach uh, in business schools, Mm -hmm. how to analyze decision-making units, those fundamentals remain, and that is where you start. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, You don't start with the computer. You start there. But then clearly what's going on in many, many industries is that sales is much more a uh, data-driven analytical task. This is Jim Koch's point when he says selling was among the most intellectually challenging tasks in business, more challenging than working for a superb consulting company was. 
And that is changing hiring mm-hmm. in sales. That is changing the importance of the ability of the people we have in sales to do the data analysis as well as the fundamentals. And uh, there's a very interesting study that's part of the competitiveness project here at HBS. They look at middle skills jobs. We just clarified that this is a U.S. competitiveness project that we launched a couple of years ago here to just assess how the U.S. can get back on its competitive footing in the world economy. That's exactly right. And by middle skills jobs, they mean those that require a high school degree, but not necessarily a full college degree. And what they found is that among the jobs that uh, these businesses are finding hardest to fill, just below what you would expect, programmers, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a seller's market there, are sales jobs. Selling's not going away, but it's changing, but it's always been changing. It's been changing since Phoenician traders sold rugs 3,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, That shouldn't surprise us. So let me escalate it now. If I'm a VP of sales in a large firm and I'm not sitting at the table, How can I get myself there? What's the argument that I would make to the leadership of the firm? Uh, Spending time in sales is a pretty good route to a general management position. Mm -hmm. But then there are other companies where sales is fundamentally a well-paid ghetto. Um, You've got to make that choice. But let me give the sales VP different advice to clarify the company strategy with the Mm C-suite. One of the problems is that most companies do not have a strategy. They may have a mission statement. They may have a purpose statement. They may have some aspiration that, you know, let's pick a big number and go for it uh, statement. But they don't have a strategy. It's tough to do productive things in business without a strategy. Great. Great advice from Frank Cespedes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure and my honor to be here. We've got a link to Frank Cespedes' book called Aligning Strategy and Sales on the website. Check it out. The Business is the official podcast of the Harvard Business School. We publish twice monthly at hbs.edu slash thebusiness. You can find all of our interviews there. It's election season, and in the coming weeks, we'll get the inside view into the lives of two young men who have held the same job for two consecutive Boston mayors, chief of staff. Both talk about their business background, their passion for public service, and they share a little inside baseball about what goes on in City Hall. You'll want to hear it. Subscribe to The Business on iTunes U or follow us on Harvard SoundCloud and join the conversation by posting your comments at hashtag the business. Thanks for joining us.